0: My guest today is Michelle Sterling. She's the spokesperson for Friends of Science, a collective of retired and semi-retired scientists who refute the mainstream evidence behind man-made climate change. We discuss the faulty model informing climate policies, the banking interests involved, and the rapid expansion of Canada's MAID program. She's a woman I lovingly refer to as the badass rebel mother of all dissenters. She is incredibly informative and pulls no punches when attacking actual misinformation. Stay tuned. Michelle, back like you never left. Thanks for uh <laughs> thanks for being back on with me.
1: Pleasure. Happy New Year. How are Yeah, you
0: doing? happy new year. I'm I'm well, I was shaving this morning and I cut my lip open. <laughs> and so for everybody watching this, if you see me dabbing my lip, I am just dabbing away the copious amounts of blood that for whatever reason won't stop pouring out of my mouth. But the show must go on so we're here.
1: <laughs> well that's okay because the more you dab the less carbon dioxide you release by breathing right? You kind of hold your breath when you do that so so you're saving the planet. I'm dude.
0: saving the planet one dab at a time. So let's uh let's let's actually talk about that because uh so last night I was hanging out I was getting ready for the show today and as always I always kind of like go back through people's Twitter feed and website and stuff just to kind of see what Topics are interesting them at the time so that we can kind of weave it all in together. And and I came across a video that you made during the holidays, and it is absolutely incredible. Um, Everybody watching this, I highly recommend that you go to uh, go to the Friends of Science website or go to the Friends of Science X account and watch video uh, personal carbon sequestration. Where did where did that idea come from?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, you know, it has kind of been rolling around in my mind for quite a while that this is probably the thing they would come up with next. Meaning that, you know, a lot of people don't realize like the, the um, uh, carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere is very, very small, minute actually. It's uh, it, it, by contrast, when people breathe out, they breathe out 40,000 parts per million carbon dioxide. And so this is a huge amount of carbon dioxide, so I've been kind of waiting um, till somebody says, okay, wait a minute, you know, it's people, human beings who are the climate change um, devils in all of this, right, with that satanic gas coming out of their mouths. And sure enough, over the holidays, or just before the holidays, I think it was released December 15th, there was a paper written, a scientific paper, where they actually um, assessed the amount of exhalation gases that people have. Now, this has been known for some time. I mean, of course, all doctors know this, swimmers know this, because carbon dioxide is essential for swimmers uh, to trigger their breathing process, and... um, But it's never really been mainstream news, but this study made it that way. And what they did is, uh, I just was reading about this morning, what they did is they asked participants to breathe into a plastic bag. (laughs) So, you know, in the science, this is the science, I don't know what kind of bag they had. They probably had a special bag, but it was plastic, let me know. (laughs) So this this research could not have been conducted without plastic. Anyway, apparently they... (laughs) breathed into a plastic bag, and then they monitored and tested and found that, yes, indeed, humans do emit not only carbon dioxide, but also methane. Oh, no. Nitrous oxide. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) So, you know, the newspaper headlines were all about how drastic and terrible this is. And, of course, it's just one more incremental way to debase the humanity of people, right? Right. I mean, to my mind now, after working on this topic for 10 years, it's no surprise to me that when the science of eugenics vanished after the Holocaust and in the late uh, 60s, 70s, when the various kinds of eugenics laws, some of which were even pertinent in Alberta uh, regarding sterilization of people who were not deemed to be suitable to carry on the next generation. Uh, And this was prevalent all across North America. There are lots of cheer squads in the scientific community for the eugenics experiments that had been going on in Europe. Um, uh, it's no surprise to me that climate change arose from the ashes of eugenics. Mm -hmm. And one of the principal elements within it is that humans are bad for the planet. And so there's all these incremental things that they keep coming up with, like this study, uh, to see just how bad people are. And if I may, I'd just like to read um, an excerpt that I was just actually discussing with you. Let's see how bad people are. This is from the conversation. We calculated the UK's greenhouse gas emissions from people breathing out. And here's what we found. That's the title of the. Of the conversation article and toward the end of it they estimated that uh, the uk population is 68.2 million that the people release a total of 1040 tons of methane and 70 tons of nitrous oxide through breathing every year that's about 13 grams of methane per person (laughs) per year But they say the impact of both gases combined works out to a total of 53,900 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. That means these gases have an equivalent, uh, an assumed equivalent warming effect of carbon dioxide on the atmosphere. And then they say it isn't much compared to the UK's overall emissions of 417 million tons a year, right? So we're comparing 53 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent to 417 million tons a year. So this is at the very end of the article. Um, You know, so you have to read the whole thing to find out that actually this is inconsequential. But much of the media reported it as if, you know, oh my god, look at that. Everybody's a walking coal plant. Let's shut them all down.
0: Yeah, so this seems like a natural progression from like you know livestock and cow fart farts now to you know human exhalation. Like it, we're just we're just moving along the line. It's a natural progression. We started at cows and livestock and chickens, and now here we are with, with, at hmm. humans. Is is that what we're seeing here?
1: Well, I think so. You know, and one of the things I did in my kind of spoofy video is that I you know, said that rather than giving gifts that are expensive at home, you can actually recycle your plastic containers and you can give the gift of carbon dioxide, which has a market value now, right? So just imagine, you know, you give that (laughs) to your family as a Christmas or birthday present, they can literally take it to the bank, you know, and I'd love to see that. I'd love to see somebody show up with a truck full of Uh, recycled plastic containers filled with their own carbon dioxide and, you know, and see if the bank will take it as uh, their mortgage payment. (laughs) I mean, why not? Banks are really into it. It's supposed to be a trillion dollar a year carbon trading market. Why can't you get in on it? You know, and that, but you know, you're going to probably be forced into it soon because the plan is a personal carbon ration. Mm. This is where they're going, you know. Uh, um, A report was released in 2016 called Deadline 2020. It was written by a consultancy firm called Arup. I don't know what special qualifications they have to tell the world how to run their affairs, but nonetheless, they produced it for the C40 cities, which are the largest cities of the world. And of course, the cities do have the largest concentration of people, they are extremely energy intensive, they do create what's called an urban heat island, meaning all the residual heat from the activities and the emissions kind of remains in a bubble of the city. And usually, and anyone can test this for themselves, if you go to downtown of virtually any city on a normal day. and test the temperature and then drive out to the country, you'll probably find anywhere from a five to six degree difference, maybe even 11 degree difference in temperature. That's within the urban heat island. Mm. Um, You know, so uh, I kind of lost my train of thought there. It's all about the progression of of humans being the problem. So these, oh yes, the C40 cities um, commissioned this report from Arup and Arup decided that people should have a 2.9 ton CO2 equivalent carbon footprint per capita. Now, you know, just to put this in context, Canadians use somewhere between 14 to 17 tons CO2 equivalent every year. So the theory is to try and get you down (laughs) to 2.9, or as low as they can get it. And in fact, I did another spoof video about uh, the housing crisis mm-hmm. and that being, you know, that all the people who are homeless, uh, you know, rather than looking at them as, as uh, poor and destitute people who are suffering, you know, when will they flip and say, these are climate heroes, right. You know, these people are living the lowest carbon footprint possible in Canada and they, you know, let's give them an award. Let's not give them housing. They already have it in their cardboard box and their tarp, you know, which oh, is it's sick. I mean, I, it's a spoof, and I did kind of an apologetic clip after to address that. But uh...
0: but I think humor is the best way because the, you know I think we're in this place where the world is changing drastically. There's um as I've heard I've heard it described, and I think it's the best description: a turnkey totalitarian state being erected around us, and you know. T- we're, we're kind of at this point where we've, we've been screaming, you know, about warning signs and people like yourself and people like me. Like, I mean, I don't know much about science or, or you know, medicine, but I can speak to history. It's, I've spent over 20 years of my life reading about history. And, and so I see the same patterns emerging here. And I've been warning people for, I mean, not just a couple of years. I've been warning people for 15 years about what's coming and you know i it, it's like it falls on deaf ears because i think we're all used to a certain standard of living and we never think that standard is going to change and the best way now to really do it is is through humor because we have to we we have to be able to approach this in a in a clever way that cap- that that catches people's attention otherwise we're just again crazy people in the woods screaming about the end of the world right and so I think what you're doing I think the approach you're taking is absolutely correct cuz you're hilarious I didn't I didn't know that I, you're 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 naturally hilarious but you know it's it, it it gets the message across better and easier that way people are actually will actually listen and pay attention and consider the the concepts that you're that you're presenting right because this is very serious this is very real right like you know you, you hear people saying oh we are we are the carbon they want to reduce and it's like, even, even when I hear it, I'm like, uh, you know, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a, well had. <laughs> right. But, but that's the truth, right? That's, that's what they're angling toward now. And, you know, like I, like we, like I mentioned earlier, it's like, it's a natural progression. We start at cars and then we go to, uh, you know, um, uh d- d- livestock and now here we are at humans right and they're making the case that we're breathing too much our our exhalation is is killing the earth which is insane it's crazy i mean it, like it's it's not it's not just crazy it's suicidal homicidal psychopathic right mm-hmm. sorry i'm still bleeding all over the place here but um but yeah so i want to talk to you about uh you you mentioned uh, banking and how banking comes into play with all of this, with, with with the climate cult. Can can you go into that a little bit?
1: Uh, well, yes. We did a report just around uh, Christmas time, which was directed to the superintendent the office of the superintendent of financial institutions, and they had released a. Um, a modeling exercise, when I say modeling, I mean like a computer model, Uh, a modeling exercise that they'd asked all banks and all financial institutions, and I believe also pension funds, to try out and see if it would standardize their assessment of their investments. So you have to understand that there's a push for mandatory climate risk Reporting, meaning that if I'm a bank or a financial institute or pension fund, and I'm invested in, say, the Alberta oil sands, what is my climate risk? And there's probably a two or threefold climate risk incorporated there. Uh, One is that um, these might become so-called stranded assets. So there's a belief in the uh, climate cult that oil gas and coal will be gone away they'll be banned nobody will ever use them anymore so if you've invested 100 million dollars into the oil sands that market will be shut off and you'll be stuck holding the bag of these useless stranded assets so that's one liability another liability might be lawsuits like you know there are lots of kids in Canada and the US and in Europe who have taken various governments to court Claiming that they have a right to a perfect future and uh, oil and gas and coal are destroying the planet, so they should uh, sue these oil companies. There's also um, sort of the green movement sees uh, the fact that oil companies have made profits in the past few years very substantial ones, especially during COVID lockdowns, and with the conflict in Ukraine and Russia, they see them almost like a, a public piggy bank, you know, and so they're kind of saying, well, we should distribute all this wealth. It's not that the wealth isn't out there. It's just in the hands of these few people who wisely invested in energy. So, you know, practically speaking, what are wind turbines and solar panels made from? Well, they're made from oil, gas and coal. So, you know, that climate risk is very low uh, in terms of stranded assets because then how can you make the next generation of technology that supposedly will run the planet? But this somehow they are unable to jump over that barrier. So this uh, standardized exercise was supposed to help them evaluate these kinds of climate risks. And also they threw in some natural climate risks, like what's the risk of an earthquake? What's the risk of, you know, wildfire? Well, these are unpredictable. No one can know. Uh, but nonetheless, the bank set this up. This is the office. Sorry, it came from the Bank of Canada which did a a modeling exercise. And then they modified it at the office of the superintendent of financial institutions. And they've asked all of these financial investment groups, whether they be pension funds, banks, um, or other financial investment firms to, to try this exercise and see if they can evaluate the climate risk. The problem is, And this also relates to the depopulation issue we've been talking about. The problem is they're using what's called RCP 8.5. And I maybe have mentioned this before. This is a set of computer scenarios that were done by various groups associated with the IPCC. That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And these are trying to evaluate what happens if we have um, fewer people what happens if we have way more people and lots more oil and gas? What happens if we have sort of a median use of oil and gas and coal and a median number of people? Now, I'm simplifying this greatly, but if you get my drift, if you're using RCP 8.5, this is an implausible scenario. It's implausible because It includes three to six billion more people on the planet that even the UN predicts would be by 2100. Um, It's implausible because it predicts that we would use more coal than exists on planet earth. It's implausible because it predicts that we would use uh, or forecast that we would use more oil than it's even deemed to be recoverable at this time. Um, and and could never be recovered within that time, you know, based on available technology. So this is a completely outlier scenario, and yet they're using it as, as if what they call the business as usual case, meaning, you know, the way we operate today. Now, we're not operating in a business as usual manner, because we have many climate regulations. Uh, you know, All of the um, car manufacturers, all of the uh, energy operators in Western worlds have greatly improved the emissions reduction uh, of their technology. You know, there's lots of uh, scrubbers on coal plants now, for instance, there are many, um, they're called heli plants, high efficiency, low emissions many high efficiency, low emissions coal plants, which are very low emitters. So, um, you know, we have many policies. So although this is from 2017, we're, we're probably more here in the RCP 4.5, which of course shows you that there's no climate emergency. There's no need to depopulate. Um, and again, I wanna say by, by showing you that, you know, I too am sort of misusing these scenarios. The people who designed these specifically said in their document, these should never be used for policy purposes. They're simply for climate research. Um, You know, and you you can understand how that could be true in climate research, you know, where you want to see which is the greater factor that Pushes the envelope, we say, okay, well, let's add more people. You know, it's almost like cooking, where you say, well, I wonder if I make this soup this way, if I add more pepper, you know, will that bring out the flavor of the ginger? Um, right. So, this is what they've done with these scenarios. If we add more people, a ridiculous number of people, what happens to the scenario? If we add more coal, a ridiculous number of people. Uh, tons of coal, what happens to the scenario? But that's only for research. It's not for policy making, meaning it's not for the way you should make laws. And therefore, this is entirely unsuitable that the uh, superintendent of financial institutions asks banks and financial institutions to use this implausible scenario as the basis for these uh, climate risk evaluations. you know we're go- they're all going to get very, very negative um, outcomes and that's going you know the problem you say well so what you know so they won't make so much money. No, the problem is that you will not have energy for your house because there will not be investment in these energy products. And, you know, I'm not being a shill for oil, gas, and coal here. I am talking to you as a human being. I am begging you to please wake up and understand that what happens in the investment markets in energy affects you in the end, because either energy prices will go through the roof or you just won't have any.
0: Yeah, and and that's it's that simple. Like, there's no alternative here. That's That's the thing I think, you know... When you're showing me that graph, right? I mean the yeah, they're using the overinflated number as the basis for their model, right? And and anybody with half a brain can figure that out. So is this a case? Cause I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Is this a case of of a bunch of bureaucrats who are just all in on this evil agenda, or do we just have the dumbest fucking people on earth running running the show? Like like honestly.
1: Well, I think there's a couple of things that happened. One is that um, in 2013, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the United Nations mostly science body. It is fairly political as well, but it is mostly concerned with science. They issued a report saying that for the previous 15 years, which was before the Kyoto Protocol, which was a very similar thing to the Paris Agreement, and the previous 15 years there had been no statistically significant global warming despite a huge increase in carbon dioxide so that pretty much puts the boots to the whole theory of human-caused global warming now you have to understand that by this time there were very significant investments in developing carbon markets, lots of startups, you know, how are we gonna solve the climate crisis? Oh, we'll make meat in a laboratory. We'll have EVs instead of uh, fossil fueled cars. We will um, think of new ways to do agriculture. So you have thousands of businesses. And like, there's a thing called the World Council on Sustainable Business. Uh, which William K. Uh, told us in an interview, it really only has about 200 companies at the top tier, but they have about 35,000 companies below them. And they're all committed to climate change objectives. So you can imagine that in the investment community, this was a horrible shock because in fact, all the things that people are investing in, all the new startups, all this innovation, basically is unnecessary. So two guys, well, I think actually there was also a third, I can't remember his name, but but um, uh, Thomas Stayer, who's probably best known, he's a California billionaire, he did make a run for president in the States, known as a green billionaire, and Michael Bloomberg, yes, of Bloomberg uh, Enterprises, PNN, et cetera, not your BNN, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, These two fellows and um, a group of environmentalists all got together, big ENGOs. They wrote a report called Risky Business. And in it, they used RCP 8.5 as the business as usual scenario. Now this report, Risky Business, proliferated throughout the financial community. So that was in 2014 that they issued it. In 2015, just before the Paris Agreement was due to uh, be signed, in September of that year, Mark Carney, who was then the uh, governor of the Bank of Canada, gave a speech to Lloyds of London called the tragedy of the horizon, saying that, you know, because these impacts of climate change are so far away, we're not acting today to uh, reduce the risk. And uh, again, he referred to risky business in his commentary. Now, a fellow named uh, Steve Kopitz of Princeton Energy Advisors went through Carney's speech and found that every single thing that he said about more wildfires, more extreme weather, blah, 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 was wrong. And he said that all of the information on this is publicly available on US government websites. So he felt that this was a failure of analysis, but you can imagine who was Carney speaking to? He was speaking to all the biggest insurance firms in the world, mm. and they are also these kinds of investors that the Bank of Canada wants to have do these kinds of scenarios. So you see uh, uh, I see that there was in my view, and I did a presentation on this for um grassroots Alberta a couple of years ago, I see that there was a complete separation in 2014 between the science community and the finance community. So the actual science that the IPCC said that there's been no warming for 15 years, statistically significant. And uh, and we even have um, uh, Hans von Storch who is a German climate scientist and his lab was the first one to identify human influence on climate. He said, well, maybe our models are running too hot. Maybe we underestimated natural variability. You know, he's quite willing to admit that there might've been a mistake, but I think the finance community went, whoa, you know, we got a good thing going here with carbon markets. You have to remember Mark Carney worked for Goldman Sachs for 13 years before he became a bank governor. Mm -hmm. And Goldman Sachs is really into carbon trading. And there's a big group of uh, big philanthropies in the United States operating under Climate Works. And you can find this peer-reviewed paper online by Matthew Nisbet, um, which is about uh, uh, strategic philanthropy in the post-cap and trade era, it's called. I think it was done in 2013, 2015, maybe. Anyway, There's about 14 or 15 of them. They're dedicated to creating two carbon trading systems in the world, and they want to cash in on that. So, of course, they can't have people saying there's no climate emergency. They can't have people saying the anthropogenic theory of global warming is is false or wildly exaggerated. So they proliferated this nonsense through the financial community. Now what they went on to do is uh, Mark Carney and Michael Bloomberg created the Task Force on Climate Risk Disclosure, which is for financial institutes and businesses. They also then created uh, the Network for Greening the Financial System, which is a network of syst- of central banks, and they all use RCP eight point five and RCP six. Both of which are wildly implausible. And even Roger PLK Jr. has done a presentation for uh, the National Academy of Scholars. And the title of the presentation is called Climate Misinformation. Hmm. But he's talking about how the banks are misinforming themselves and the public on climate change. So that split happened around 2014. And the finance community has steamed ahead, you know, and of course, Sorry to just be on this big rant. No,
0: please, please, please keep going. <laughs> but
1: of course, this also affects cities. You know, like many people are looking at Ottawa and Calgary and Edmonton and going, what is it with these multi-billion dollar climate plans? They're all using RCP 8.5 as the business as usual scenario, which of course is false. Mm-hmm. That's how they come up with the catastrophic claims like, oh, my God, if we don't do something now, we're all going to die. Um and uh, cities, of course, issue municipal bonds. Cities have very entrenched unions and pensions, and many of those union pension funds are invested in these climate instruments, uh, either carbon markets, uh, wind and solar, uh, through mutual funds or directly. Uh, you know that, That's material that we don't have direct access to, but you can see that there would be a self-interest within these cities Not to mention, uh, many cities have been recipients of the Rockefeller's, um, what is it, C-100 cities, where Rockefeller funded a person to be the climate resilience officer. Calgary was a recipient of such an award. So what they did is they paid a person to work for the city for a year or two, I don't remember the term exactly, um, to develop climate resiliency. And basically, you know, it's to incorporate a certain kind of mentality and indoctrination within the municipal governments. Um, You know, so cities are very accessible for climate activists and uh, the climate activist community has networked this really strongly. And of course, you know, many people live in, of course, they live in the same community as their ward counselor. So you you probably know the person, right? Probably went for coffee with them. Maybe you're on the Rotary with them, whatever. So it's quite accessible. And the climate activists have really activated that. And you'd be surprised to find how many unions are funding these environmental groups. Uh, And again, what are they doing? They're always pitching the climate emergency and the implausible, implausible scenario. Hmm. Unless you know that that's an implausible scenario, you know, when your consultant brings you back the report, you go, oh, that's great. Okay, this is what we have to do. In fact, I just saw a report, like Calgary is now doing um, reports on various neighborhoods, and I just saw the report they issued on Marta Loop. And what are they using? RCP (laughs)
0: 8.5. It's wild. You know it's like you know as we're we're emerging from the rubble of covid nineteen right we're we're starting to realize how much of the or how many of the you know studies that were put forth in the mainstream to justify a lot of the policy that was that was enacted how how many of them were either doctored or not complete or you know done wrong or just were just complete you know lies were just total lies. And, you know, I mean, that the the COVID-19 disaster is a microcosm of what we're looking at here, right? I mean, this is something that is so vast and so far reaching and has such catastrophic implication to it, right? I mean, we are literally at a point where they are talking about the fact that that, you know, our breathing contributing to the end of the world, you know, and so it's, it's, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, five years from now, we reach a scenario where they're starting to decide, you know, who gets to live and who doesn't, who, who has the privilege of breathing.
1: We're already there. And I'll tell you why. Okay. In 2012, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, issued a report and part of it in Chapter 4 stated that good health care makes people live too long they live three years longer with good health care and that creates pension fund liabilities. So uh, about 2016, Citibank issued a report uh, in which it noted that the Western OECD nations, that's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, um, that they have $78 trillion in unfunded pension liabilities. So if you put, those two things together then what that means is they want to shorten people's lives and they also want to get rid of seniors and one way that you get rid of seniors is not treating them and then you offer them made you know because they're in pain so if they can't get treatment and you're rationing healthcare so that you won't increase your pension fund liabilities now you know i'm saying these things based on what i've read i'm not saying the because I've read in public policy that this is exactly what is being done. But let me just read you a little bit from this uh, paper that was issued in the UK. It's called Geriatric Medicine in the Era of Climate Change. Well, first of all, climate has always changed. This is not a new era. And we're not in anything extreme that hasn't happened before. And I know This week, we're going to have extreme weather blow in. There's a polar vortex coming. Everybody be prepared for that. But (laughs) but those have happened before. We know what winter is, right? Mm -hmm. So then it's coming this week. So don't be alarmed. But in this geriatric medicine in the era era of climate change, they're saying that this is from the National Health Services in the UK, that the National Health Services contributes 5.7% to the carbon footprint of the UK, And by reviewing the financial costs associated with frailty, that means being elderly, typically, or quite sick, um, we estimate the carbon footprint of frailty to be 1.7 megatons carbon dioxide equivalent, or 7% of the total National Health Service's carbon footprint. So here they are counting the footprint of Elderly, ill people, people who paid into their pension fund their entire life, paid into their healthcare in their entire life, and now these climate clowns in the healthcare community are evaluating people as to how much energy they're using, what's your carbon footprint, grandma, you know. And there are reports from England that during the COVID lockdowns, um, a number of hospitals have been. Um, under investigation, under caution, meaning that there is potential criminal charges for using um, midazolam and other uh, respiratory suppressants to help people out of this world without their permission, without their relative's knowledge, and without them being sick enough to require it. You know, this is something, a drug that, as I understand, it's used... Uh, either for surgical purposes or it's used in palliative care for end of life care. Uh, So it gradually stops a person from breathing as I understand it. Um, But you see during lockdowns, what happened, you know, people were not able to visit their loved ones in hospital. Right. Yeah. So you get a phone call that I'm sorry, you know, your mother passed away and you go, wait a minute, you know, I just, I did see her just before lockdowns happened, and she seemed okay. Or the other alternative where there's a story, I think it's in CTV, a 90-year-old woman in Canada um, went through the lockdowns fine. You know, she was in her little room. She was doing, you know, chair exercises and running around the room. She was very fit and healthy and optimistic. After the first lockdown, she was happy to go back to normal life. When the second one came in, she said, no, I want made." I don't want to go through that again
0: no kidding
1: and her family applauded her decision Ugh. and i think you have to also realize a lot of these um pension funds and investment firms invested in senior care because if you look back 20 years you go "Wow, look at that there's going to be an ocean of boomers who will need um residential care right uh, as they age, And some will prefer to be in a smaller apartment with, you know, some in-house aids and some will require being in a uh, full service kind of um, medical facility that's not medical, you know, uh, a facility with home care and all that right on site. So they invested in a lot of these, but now it's becoming very expensive to run them. Um, you can't get the staff. The people need more and more care. Uh, The hospitals can't take them. Uh, And we saw during um, COVID lockdowns, we saw the tragedy, especially in Montreal and Ontario, where people who were infected with COVID were brought back into many of these homes, infecting many other people there. And in some cases, these homes were totally abandoned by staff, uh, probably because they just simply couldn't deal with the overload and didn't have enough staff backup. So the military had to go in. You know, and they found people lying in beds in their own urine and feces hadn't been changed, hadn't been properly fed. So you can see the confluence of these factors, the aging demographics of boomers, the pension fund liabilities, um, the... uh, now we have the focus on climate within the healthcare care community. Um, and even at one point, uh, there's a, a paper on Longwoods. I can find it for you if you want to put it in the links where during lockdowns, uh, somebody in Canada evaluated the telemedicine benefits to the climate <laughs> during lockdowns mm-hmm. and how many CO2 emissions they saved. Uh, it's, you know, you you read this and you can't really believe that people who've dedicated their lives to health care would even write such a thing. Because the 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 contribution to reduction of emissions is nothing <laughs> compared to say China, which emits in one month what Canada emits in a year and eight months. Mm-hmm. You know, and yet you have these climate doctors and climate nurses who are advocating for solar panels on the roof of the hospital, for telemedicine rather than meeting Um, one-on-one. You know, the eugenics element behind all of this, to me, is very, very clear.
0: It's very clear. And, you know, it, it, it always just baffles me how you know, the people who tend to fall in line with this agenda tend to be of a certain political ideology and the people on that and where people who belong to that ideology love to call everybody Nazis. They love to point at everybody and call them fascists and Nazis. And they they don't realize that the things that they're participating in are 100% reminiscent of the eugenics, uh, program with, in Nazi Germany. I mean, it's, 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 it's just a continuation of that. And, you know, I was, our, our first conversation, you floored me, like you, you brought so many things to, to my mind that I just had not considered or, or wasn't aware of. And, you know, when you were talking about the effort to, to get rid of the boomers and, and, you know, the reasonings for it. I I thought back to the COVID pandemic and I thought, yeah, like what, what was the worst possible thing that you could do to senior citizens during that time? Well, lock them in a room, Um, away from their families, completely isolated, you know, and, and, you know, you, you mentioned stories of, you know, uh, people who had been locked in rooms and were found lying in their own feces and, 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 and whatnot. But I read stories of people being discovered two to three weeks after they had died and their bodies were, were already decomposing. Right. You know, this is, this is what we did to our, our mothers and fathers and our grandparents. This is what we did to them, you know? And like, I remember during the lockdown, there was a, a senior center by where I lived in Vancouver and I used to walk by there with my daughter every day to go to the park. And every day there was all these people standing outside holding holding signs and waving to their to their ailing parents and grandparents through the window. And I just just thought to myself, you fucking cowards. You cowards, you know? Like... Either, either you're either you're too cowardly to push against this thing that we all know is wrong, or you're too stupid to to operate as an adult human being. I mean, if that was my parent or my grandparent, or if it were, were me, I mean, if it were me, I would I would would have much rather taken the chance of dying at dying of dying at home with my family rather than locked in a room alone, and you know, let's, let's be honest here at that stage in your life, you're kind of in the, the you know, taking the last few steps anyways. So do you want to spend it locked in a room by yourself? Or do you want to spend it at home with the people you love? You know, and if it were my mom, there was no, there's just no way I would have left her there. No way. I would have walked in there, put her in a wheelchair and rolled her out. And anybody who wanted to try to stop me could try to stop me. You're not going to be very successful at it, but good luck. Give it a shot, you know, but I thought about what you said, and yeah, it makes total sense that that the people in in your generation and older are being targeted by this specifically first, because you're the easiest ones to take out. In, in all fairness, you know, and then next it'll be my generation, and and you know, and then they'll just keep working down the line until they have this perfect poly- population full of, um, you know, compliant people. I mean, that's that's really the future we're looking at.
1: Well, um, yes and no, I would say that, you know, part of the issue with the boomer generation is that there's a lot of us, you know, we used to make up 22% of the population in Canada, which is huge. And now, of course, we're all reaching the end of our lives. And we'll all be gone by 2050. All things being equal, unless someone comes up with a miracle. (laughs) you know, tree of life or whatever it is, uh, fountain of youth. Um, And unfortunately, as people age, they require more medical care. Uh, They usually have various kinds of chronic conditions, whether it be diabetes or uh, cancers of various types, um, uh, heart conditions. And so that medical care uh, demands a lot of uh, people power a lot of money and a lot of hospital time so you know really the climate cult by targeting hospitals and care uh is uh going after this boomer community but in a different way you know and and also i, I like i did a presentation about uh my brother's passing, he chose MAID. He did have a very serious, um, complicating condition called uh, progressive supranuclear palsy. It's a form of Parkinson's, but it's very, very aggressive. And usually people end up um, in a wheelchair and on a feeding tube because they can't swallow properly anymore. It affects all those muscles. And also uh, they fall down a lot unexpectedly in in a way that they can't save themselves so ultimately a wheelchair is the only place that's safe for them to be now of course some people with serious conditions continue living a healthy uh, happy and engaged life to the best they can you know so we shouldn't make decisions for people who are compromised in any way whether it be mental illness or physical complication i mean look at um Uh, what was it, Christopher Reeves, look at uh, Rick Hansen, you know, people who were very healthy and fit before, then they had a terrible accident, they became uh, paraplegic, quadriplegic in a wheelchair, and yet they went on to do fantastic things for many, many years and lived very happy and engaged lives. And Rick is still doing so. Uh, I believe Christopher Reeves passed away a couple of years ago. He did, yeah. Yeah, but... um, you know, who who could decide at that moment and say, well, sorry, buddy, you're going to need a lot of care and rehab. We think you're too expensive. Uh, You know, but this is the situation that we're in now, partly because the healthcare community has been co-opted by the World Health Organization, which they did this in uh, 2021, I believe it was, for COP26. They all signed on to this climate commitment. Uh, And you saw, or maybe you didn't, at COP28, which was recently in uh, the United Arab Emirates, Dubai, um, there was a a petition which was allegedly signed by 46 million (laughs) healthcare workers, you know, to phase out fossil fuels immediately. Well, if you do that, then you can't have a hospital. You can't have modern healthcare. Like, I don't know why they're shooting themselves in the foot. My only explanation is that they must have investments in wind and solar, because that's all they're pushing all the time, or in carbon credits, Um, you know, uh, and I mean, by investments, I mean that their unions are probably invested in these things. I don't have proof of that, but that's the only thing that makes sense to me. Because why would you, as a medical provider, demand a phase out, complete and total shutdown of natural gas and um, oil and coal? Without coal, you can't make any diagnostic equipment like a CT scanner. You need coal to make the steel. Without natural gas, you can't make any of the PPEs or the masks or the little shades or the full hazmat gear. Um, You can't have sterile utensils for uh, surgery. You can't have sterile plastic inserts, one-use plastic. Items you want to go into surgery and use some item that some other person had, you know, come on. You, do yeah. they really want to go back to kitchen table surgery where people, you know, tore up strips of bed sheets and boiled them in water to make them sterile yeah. and used, uh, you know, forceps like you might use as a car mechanic, you know, to pull parts out of your body and stitch you up with, I don't know, cloth thread that is not like the, modern special gel threads that they use that disintegrate with time and and heal your wound without you having to go back for stitching. i mean what are they thinking you know but unfortunately these lunatic climate cult doctors are now making these kinds of decisions about people and in concert the government has instituted made and is now kind of handing made out to anybody who asks and in fact in uh, i think it's only 70 days made legislation will include people who have mental illnesses
0: yeah you know the made discussion is such a it's so dark you know like so i i have an uncle who he had a brain tumor and it was growing in the center of his brain and um he committed suicide because you know they they basically told him it was inoperable and <laughs> that you know it 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 was just going his his illness was just going to progress and eventually he'd get to a point where he'd be a vegetable and would need you know basically uh you know day-to-day care until the end of his life right and so you know he made the choice for himself i think once he started to feel like he was losing his faculties he went into his garage and and shot himself right but you know i think i think about I think about him in this discussion a lot because had made have been available to him, I think it would have been a much more humane way for him to die. And I think, you know, he was a definitely like a very much a masculine man. So I don't know if he would have done it. I think in his garage with his rifle was probably <laughs> his ideal way of of ending his life. But I think about that scenario, right? And, and you know, had that have been available to him maybe there was a more uh humane way for him to end his life but you know we're at this stage where we're taking this thing way too far right. and and yeah i mean making made available for people with mental illness that raises all sorts of ethical concern right because as you mentioned what if what if you have somebody who's who's you know due to their mental illness doesn't have control of their own mind yeah. And they're asking to end their life. I mean, do, you don't know who that person really is inside, especially if they had been, you know, ever been properly medicated or treated for their illness. Maybe if you were to to provide, you know, uh, treatment that can significantly improve their their uh, quality of life, their their opinion on it or their perspective will change, right? Mm. So we're we're crossing into very dangerous waters here.
1: We are. And I mean, there's also, I think, a complication in that, as I mentioned about boomers being uh, the biggest chunk of the Canadian population for a long time, you know, so that becomes a death business. So I've just been reading a book by a doctor who does administer MAID, and I do agree with you. And I I agreed with my brother for him. He was, uh, as you mentioned about your uncle, my brother, was also like a man's man kind of thing. He was uh, very, very fit all his life. He was a fitness and health buff. He he was uh, one of the top five marathon runners in BC at one time. Um, Did the Ironman, uh, you know, always, I mean, uh, sometimes I'll almost look down on people who, you know, were not willing to do something to be healthy. And then in the end met this terrible fate where you could do nothing. So I agreed with his decision about MAID, but I disagree with how MAID is being handled now. And also that, you know, it's being pushed on vulnerable people, as you mentioned, mentally ill people. And we're not having the conversation about the fact that there is a cost element in all of this. Mm. We should have an open public debate on this. I um, I think that many people have, through their life, You know paid their taxes and then they get into their elder years and you often hear people say well when i get my knee surgery when i get my hip surgery because it's almost like ei you know in their mind they have paid into the system for the time when they actually will really need the the health and we know that many people of the older generation they wouldn't even dream of going to the hospital when they had a cut you know they just clean it up patch it up a little bit at home and unless it got infected. You know, they wouldn't waste public funds. I mean, even my mother, uh, my my late mother, when she had surgery in Edmonton, uh, they wanted to send her home in an ambulance. And we had come to pick her up. We were there with the van and everything. And the hospital said, oh, no, we always send our patients home in an ambulance. And my mom was feeling quite fit. And uh, I, I said, but you're releasing her today. And they said, yeah. And I said, and she said, you know, can't I just go home with my family in the van? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, "Well, it's our standard practice." And she said, "But it's going to cost the healthcare system a couple of thousand dollars to send that ambulance down to Red Deer and back, um, when you know I could just go in the van." And they said, "Well, we'll have to make you sign a waiver." And she was like, "Please <laughs> <So laughs> sign the waiver." And, you know, everything was fine. Now maybe they'd done that as a precautionary measure, but think of the thousands of dollars that that could save right there. Yeah. Um, but we're not talking about the fact of the uh, um, financial challenges that we have. There's a Fraser Institute report on the fact that each of us is indebted for more than a quarter of a million dollars in terms of pension fund liabilities and healthcare care liabilities in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's talking about that because this is a practical reality, as you said, about your... Your mother, if she was in one of these uh, home care facilities and they weren't taking care of her, you'd take her home. Well, not everyone can take their parent home, Mm -hmm. but we, as a society, have to start thinking about how are we going to manage this? Because it's going to get way worse. We need to be compassionate and we don't need to just be popping people off with maid. You Mm -hmm. know, maybe we have to do things like, um, uh, there's a book that I've referred to in one of my videos on this topic. Uh, which is by June Caldwell, Caldwell, Wood, callwood, sorry. She wrote it in the 70s, 80s, I think, called Six Weeks in Spring. And it's about a woman who had uh, pancreatic cancer. She didn't want to go through all the treatments. And she just wanted to be at home. So her church group got together and they arranged to have round the clock uh, companionship with her at her home. And she passed away at home, you know, with her cats and her music and the sunlight streaming through the front window um, in a place that she loved uh, with the care of her church community. Mm. So, you know, I think that's a model for people. And we have to think about things like that because the money's not there. The healthcare system isn't going to help you uh, as much as they could formerly and and when I say that I'm not saying that they're bad people, I think they're totally overworked. And ultimately, the system is underfunded and not able to face that tsunami of challenges coming their way um, on the topic of mentally ill people. In one of my presentations, we have one on the website called conflating uh, health care and climate is a dangerous public policy. Uh, in it, I refer to the fact that there's a very small percentage of mentally ill people who do take up most of the resources um, because they are not able to break the cycle of whatever uh, things happen to them. So, you know, how are we going to address that? Are we going to just shuffle people off in May or could we come up with, say, a compassionate kind of community for people with Alzheimer's? Could we take a small town? Um in Alberta or any other place in the world. I think they've done this in Holland where they've created a Alzheimer's community that's gated, that people live there and they have helpers that live there. Um, But the Alzheimer's patients are able to sort of wander around this little village and live as normally as they can um, and with nominal support, um, but without being locked in. You know, we, I think we have to think of some innovative ways of helping people rather than.
0: Yeah. Well, we have to think about how we want our own lives to end. Yes. Right. You know, I mean, that's that simple. I mean, we're, it's, it's okay to talk about facts and figures and data and all, you know, all that and all that great stuff. But when you're talking about human beings, we're not numbers. Right, and you know it's 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 um it's disheartening, but it's also scary to to you know, like i I watched Stephen Gabot, and for our American listeners, we have a lot of American listeners, so he's our our environment minister, he's a activist, I mean, he's beyond an activist, he's a cult he's a climate cult leader. I wouldn't even call him a member. And I, and I was listening to him talk about, you know, carbon and the need to reduce carbon. And now he's shifting his, his, uh, focus over to methane. And I'm like, you're talking about fucking people, man. You're talking about people, you know, we can keep talking about it as if it's, you know, like, like, you know, the way we started this conversation, you know, the, your video on personal carbon sequestration, right? It, it it's It's hilarious. But it's true and that's what makes it horrifying is we're talking about people breathing. We're talking about livelihoods, survival here, right? And so when you talk about made or or you know, personal carbon rations or any of that shit, we need to start thinking about the fact that we're talking about people and the future and our children and the world that we're leaving behind. I mean, that's a lot of the reason why I'm sure you do what you do and why I'm doing what I'm doing and talking to you today, because I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about the world that we're creating because we've become so disconnected from each other and so divided by, you know, political ideology and social issues that we don't see each other as human beings anymore. And in a lot of cases, we view each other as being avatars on a screen. But these were, were, were red-blooded human beings. And so when we're talking about denying people medical care for treatable diseases that will maybe only extend their life by a year or two, wouldn't you want that treatment? Or would you rather that the, the establishment and the institutions within it turn its back on you and just let you die, you
1: know? Right. And, you know, again, the financial I- issue is real there, but uh, our American friends probably don't know that Canadians are are not able to uh, choose a private provider and pay for it themselves, because that's deemed to not be universal. That's deemed to be jumping the queue, even though it would make the queue shorter on the other side. Um, and so some of some Canadians, many Canadians fly to different places in the U.S. or medical tourism in like Thailand or India or whatever um, to get some of the care that they are denied here or delayed here. Um, uh, I I wanted to mention also, you know, I think that one of the things that we may see soon as a solution for the problem that's been created, and I think that this came out of lockdowns is that we may see fake doctors, and AI diagnosis. Uh, there's a, there's a medical pod that has been created, I think, in combination with the UAE and France. Okay. <clears throat> and on the surface, it's a great idea, actually. If we had benevolent governments, <laughs> and if we hadn't gone through lockdowns, it would probably be quite well accepted. As it is, I'm very skeptical of it. But um, the idea is that you create this little pod where the patient arrives at the local medical clinic. They go into the pod, uh, sit down, and there's all kinds of different little probes that you, you know, stick in your ear and your mouth, take your temperature, whatever your uh, BP. Um, and on the screen before you is a doctor, uh, which one would think would be a real doctor, but actually, could be a deep fake doctor right mm-hmm. and uh, as you're checking yourself out this is all being fed into an uh, artificial intelligence unit which evaluate, evaluates and diagnoses you and i understand from some people that that diagnosis is probably more accurate than a lot of the diagnoses that uh, doctors have done um So then the doctor will look at the diagnosis from the AI readout and give you a prescription for care. You leave there. The person who runs the little clinic comes in, cleans it up, sterilizes it, and away you go. So, you know, we've been promised in uh, 15-minute cities that there will be medical facility right there within walking distance. So that's certainly one option that could be there. Um, But just imagine if you have this Deep fake doctor and an AI unit assessing you and saying, wow, this person's actually on the verge of getting really sick. <laughs> you know, we can see mm-hmm. that they have these chronic issues propping up here, kidney issues, whatever. Why don't we give them this medication? You know, so the person takes a medication thinking they'll get well. Yeah. I guess, you know, cool so the you know, there's no accountability. No. There's no conscience involved. And where would they have gotten all this deep fake doctor stuff from? Well, think of the many millions of telemedicine calls and zoom calls that were done during the lockdowns,
0: right. Well, and I mean, the thing is is you know, you just alluded to it, but i'll 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 re I'll restate it for people who didn't catch it. AI is programmable, right. right. So, if you go to an AI doctor, you can't assume that that AI doctor, you know, program that you're talking to has your best interest in mind, right? Because it's been programmed by somebody else. And Mm -hmm. just as you alluded to, I mean, you're, you're talking about a scenario where human doctors would be absolved of any wrongdoing, right? Because they're not the ones who are making the diagnosis. It's the machine. And what are you going to, how are you going to criminally prosecute a machine for, for malpractice, he can't. So they could program it any which way, depending on whichever way the wind is blowing at the time, right? I mean, again, we're 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 moving into a very dark place here, and we're we're already under the assumption that that we have AI under control. You know, I'm writing an essay right now, kind of questioning the idea that what if the the AI, the future AI that we fear, is already here? It's already arrived, and we're already being manipulated. I mean, look around you, your whole life is controlled mostly by algorithms, right? So who's to say that those algorithms aren't being manipulated by a program to turn you into something that you don't even know you're being turned into, you know, and that's, that's, that's the real fear, uh, uh, you know, here is that, you know, we, there are some very evil people. And I think those people have yet to be to be fully established as to who they are and what they represent, but it's clear that there are some very evil pe- people driving the this climate agenda and the World Health Organization and the UN and the World Economic Forum and all of these groups, and you know we're just we're just going to hand everything over to them. Is that is that the idea here that we're just going to you know accept what we're being what 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 we're being fed the the information or misinformation, the real and misinformation were being given, you know?
1: Well, as uh, Richard Lindzen said many, many years ago, if you control carbon dioxide, you control life. And uh, he was uh, from a Jewish family who escaped Nazi Germany, actually, so He saw the eugenics element very clearly in the climate agenda. And recently, we've heard John Kerry saying that, you know, agriculture is, and and also Tedros at Tahoe, saying that agriculture is, uh, agricultural emissions are killing 8 million people a year. Are you kidding me? It's so crazy. the, The only way that we're able to feed 8 billion people a year is, thanks to modern agriculture and and fertilizers, you know. So if you're cutting fertilizers, then you're destroying food uh, production. And if you destroy food production, then millions of people in the world are gonna starve and they're already starving. You know, the war in uh, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine has cratered all of the fertilizer facilities in Europe, pretty much. It's uh, blocked wheat uh, exports, and it's driven the cost of wheat exports up dramatically. And of course, the conflict is in an area of planting. So neither side is gonna be planting big crops in the next few years. I mean, I, even after the conflict ends, um, it's not clear when that land would be viable for planting again, because a lot of it's you know, maybe contaminated, or maybe filled with mines or unexploded shells. So, you know, some countries in the world are completely reliant on wheat for their food sources like Egypt. So actually just before COP 26, I think it was, no COP 27, which was in Sharm el-Sheikh, Nomi Klein was mocking and criticizing the Egyptian government for um, trying to sell natural gas. Well, they have to sell natural gas so they can buy wheat to feed their people. Like, you know, are these climate activists so stupid that they can't understand this?
0: She is. Yes, she is. (laughs) She's no she's I want to make a comment here because she's deliberately deceptive. You know, I've I throughout my life, I have had. A handful of people, and it still happens today, who often rep- reference her book, Shock Doctrine as being kind of like a Bible on on of of uh, American foreign policy. But for everybody out there listening to this, she she is she has habitually manipulated facts and reality in order to fit her her own ideology. Um, and her own ideological perspective and I'm actually having Naomi Wolf back on really soon to talk to her about uh, a number of things but I'm also going to talk about the book that Naomi Klein wrote about her specifically because it's super weird that you would write about an entire book about somebody um who you're often mistaken for but um yeah sorry I I cut in there and I (laughs) I just wanted to clarify on that yeah she's she is deliberately deceptive
1: yeah well I guess um one of the things that you know I, I want to make clear to people is that if you uh, look at your local hospital and look at your local groups like the Cape doctors or the cane nurses, that's the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment or Cane, which is Canadian Association of Nurses for the Environment. These groups are being funded by very big foundations that have investments in renewables and cap and trade interests. And they are busy on all these climate initiatives uh, in hospitals. I mean, the O'Brien School of Public Policy in Calgary issued a climate doctor uh, kind of uh, publication in April of 2022. So I, and my point here is that if we are understaffed at hospitals, if we don't have the money to properly meet the needs of people, why is any doctor or any hospital engaged in climate cult activity of any kind? Why is Dr. Vipond flying to uh, the UAE to carry the globe on his shoulder mm-hmm. as if Atlas you know bearing the the burden of the world on his shoulder um, to advocate to completely phase out fossil fuels, which would destroy all forms of modern medicine. Uh, why are any of these people engaged in this and why isn't anybody saying anything except us? you know yeah. it's ludicrous these people are leading, to the death of society really they're destroying modern society and and may be very well intentioned you know a lot of people think oh we have to save the planet for our children and in the process they are destroying both the planet the children the present generation and any hope of having a western society in the future
0: yeah and actually you know um to cap off this conversation that was actually where i wanted to to go here was to ask you what do you think the motivations are behind all of this because you know i mean is it just getting rid of you know 4 billion people and and having the and saving the entire planet for a small handful of of elite billionaires and you know is is that what this is about like the thing that i that i struggle with here is is understanding the motivation behind it all, because it's a whole lot of work, a whole lot of ethic, or sorry, a whole lot of work, a whole lot of effort, and a whole lot of moral and ethical compromise to get there. And, you know, obviously some of these people are psychopaths, but they can't all be psychopaths. So is it, is it just a matter of, you know, for example, these, these doctors that you just referenced, like obviously they don't know that they're being used. They don't know that they're, they're just, you know, a hammer and a, and a, you know, for a, for a really dark, evil agenda. They'll be eliminated eventually as well. But, but for the people at the very top of this, I mean, I'm sure you don't know. And I guess we can only speculate, but what do you think their, their true motivations are here?
1: Well, I, you know, I can't, I can only speculate, as you say, I would say there probably is a group of people who realize like, because of automation and technology today, like, hey, you know, there's a lot of useless eaters who are just consuming things that we want for ourselves and our future. So why don't we get rid of a lot of them? That was the thinking in Weimar, Germany. And I know that you've referred to the Weimar Republic many times in your conversations with, with me and with other people. Then there's probably uh, a very big group of people and perhaps even the office of the superintendent of uh, financial institutions, perhaps all the central banks, you know, who see this. And on the one hand, they see like, oh, my God, you know, we absolutely have to get rid of lots of people. Maybe they don't think it in that same way, but they understand like, oh, boy, you know, this is going to boil the world. So uh, one of the elements to get rid of would be population, reduce population. And uh, let's say you got a whole bunch of doctors in the room and you told them, look, you know, we're going to hit this RCP 8.5 pretty soon unless we address these issues. Then there's another aspect of it where people see it as a, a, a legacy of saving the planet many people have their whole identity formed around it now they ride a bike to work they've moved into a condo and rather than live in the suburbs they've denied themselves and sacrificed all of the um comforts that many people enjoy and especially in the western world because they're saving the planet and they deeply resent those who did not go along with it and i would say that this is a very similar emotional split as those who were outraged that people wouldn't wear masks, and those who said, "I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not going to comply." Mm-hmm. So, you know, I I think that same kind of ideological and emotional split is very evident in the climate community, and the a lot of those people do, you know, they it's wrapped up in their identity. They firmly believe this. Uh, And it's of a pure desire to do a right thing, you know, but it's gone into zealotry, so you can't even talk with them about it. And then, of course, you know, there's all the innocent and naive people like the Gretas of the world and all of her followers, who firmly believe there's no future because of fossil fuels, when if they understood energy and production of things, they'd know that there's no future without them. You know, so they're actually advocating for their own demise and their own miserable future. Uh, They want to go back to a time when people used horses to plow the field. Be my guest. That's what my grandfather did out Mm -hmm. here on the prairies. Mm -hmm. And it was a hard life. He almost died. You know, one day when he was building the um, homestead, he was so hungry. He had no food to eat. And he knew there was a jackrabbit that lived in the wood pile near where he was building the homestead. So he had one shot left in his rifle <laughs> and he did manage to get that jackrabbit. Mm. But that, that, he could have died just trying to survive back then. Right. So people don't realize that that's what they're actually advocating for is their own demise or their own suffering. Um, and, and the fact that it, this kind of mentality has entered the medical community in my view is a huge tragedy and a huge threat to humanity
0: yeah it's fascinating that we have we now have the technology to essentially make human life as you know efficient and um simple and easy as it's ever been and yet we're using it to make our lives harder and in some ways And, and life in general. Right. Um,
1: again, you know, if we had open civil debate on these matters, if the financial complications and challenges of the healthcare needs were brought forward and we could discuss them in a thoughtful, open manner, uh, that would be helpful. It would be difficult. Uh, I'm sure that it will happen at some point, but, uh, as long as people don't know about it and wonder, well, where is my hip surgery? How come I'm on a wait list for three or four years? When I paid for it for the past 40 years of my life, I worked and I paid for this surgery, where is it? You know, as long as we don't discuss the fact of what's happened with this demographic shift of boomers into their elder years, the loss of funding, and the ideologies that are running around behind it then you know if we don't discuss it then we can't solve it and we can't address it in a humane manner
0: i think that's a perfect way to end this um michelle i described you last night as the badass mother of all dissenters <laughs> I saw that. and i think i think i think that's that's the most accurate way to describe you you're you're fucking awesome man and um <laughs> I, I'm going to talk to you offline and stick around after we're done here and we'll say our goodbyes privately, but I want to follow up again in like a month or two. I, I love talking to you. You're so informative and <laughs> you're just, you you have this way of explaining things, you know, it's like Forrest Gump and, and his mama, right? Like you have this way of explaining things that I think millions of us out there can, can finally understand and grasp them because these are, these are very high concepts, you know? Yeah. And, and I think a lot of us, struggle with them you know myself included uh because it's like i I, you know you don't even have the basis for understanding what the what's being discussed here right and and really what it takes is somebody like yourself to step forward who understands what they're looking at who has a team working behind you that can explain it to you and then to uh to translate it to all of us so that that we have a better understanding of it all um Michelle, I hope you start a podcast one day. I, I really do. I, I, I'll be your first subscriber. I'll be your number one listener. Um, but until then, uh, can you tell everybody where they can find you?
1: Um, sure. You can go to www.friendsofscience.org. And we're on YouTube and LinkedIn. We just got on Gab. Uh, we're on Twitter and uh, Instagram. And uh, we're on YouTube. Lots of YouTubes. Uh, and if you want to see uh, the story of my brother's uh, experience and mine with Made, uh, you can see that also on my personal website michellesterling.com under Net Zero Plus Healthcare Equals Made for You. Uh, that's a presentation that I gave at Freedom Talk, which is an Alberta organization, and actually they have um, another con- um, conference coming up in April. So they always have very interesting speakers. I guess I'm <laughs> putting myself in that category. Hey, uh, yes, so,
0: you, you deserve to be there. You deserve to be there.
1: <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Jason.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Michelle. And uh, everybody, uh, please go to the Friends of Science X account. Also go to the Friends of Science YouTube channel. Michelle is one of the, uh, she, she's a sleeper. You You don't think she's as hilarious as she is, but then you go and you, I was dying laughing last night. So, uh, so thanks again, Michelle.
1: Pleasure. Thank you.